You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Understand this coming Sunday is a special day to commemorate an event that none of us saw, that our parents did not see, our grandparents did not see, our ten times grandparents did not see, something that happened almost 2,000 years ago. There was the temple that stood in Yerushalayim, and it was brought down, it was destroyed, and so almost 2,000 years later, we're still crying about it. And we have to wonder, how do you keep crying? How do you keep mourning after so long? That's the question. The Talmud quotes different sources for different customs for how to properly mourn the destruction of the temple. And I quote to you, from the Gemara, from the Talmud. The Talmud says, Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Rav. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav. This was the custom of Rav Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Eli. On the day before Tisha B'Av, on the day before the ninth of Av, he would take a piece of hard bread and he would sit under the oven, which was the dirtiest place in the house. And he would eat the hard bread and drink a pitcher of water. And if anyone would have seen him, they would have thought that the departed is is sitting before him. Meaning that Rabbi Yehuda Barilai, when he mourned the destruction of the temple, he would take... But before the fast would begin, he would take this piece of hard bread and this pitcher of water and sit down in the dirtiest place of the house, which was under the oven where everything had collected, and he would eat it, and he looked like someone had just died. Now, so we would think, uh, if you hear that passage of the Talmud, you would go, okay, once upon a time, there was a great sage who mourned the temple in a way that we aren't necessarily, we're not on the level to do that. Except that the Rambam cites this, and this is what the Rambam says. And remember, the Rambam lives um, 800 years ago. So he says, he quotes all the customs for how to mourn, and then he says, and these customs, that's for regular people, for your standard folk, You just mourn the way that we've just described. I'm not going to go through the list of all the instructions that he gives. But the great pious people, the special people, they had a special custom. On the day before Tisha B'Av, they would sit by themselves with a hard piece of bread and with a pitcher of water, and they would go sit under the oven, and they would eat it and drink the pitcher of water, and they looked sad and they looked desolate and they were filled with tears as if someone had just passed away. And then the Rambam adds, this is the way that all sages and righteous people should do, either this or something like this. And the Rambam, 
rarely does this in his writings, but says, personally, in my home, which we don't usually find in the Rambam's writings, personally, in my home, we won't even eat a cooked dish of lentils on the day before Tisha B'Av, unless it falls on Shabbos. But, but you're supposed to figure out extra ways of mourning. So this makes the question even more difficult. Because our question was, 2,000 years ago, there was a temple that stood and it was brought down. And we're asking, like, how do I connect to something that was so long ago? And what makes this question even more difficult is if you look in the commentaries in the Talmud and in the Rambam, they seem to suggest that there's such a deep level of mourning that it actually is a greater mourning than what we, we would be accustomed to. How do we get there? So in order to understand this, I'd like to share with you just a few minutes um, one of the greatest Torah personalities of the 20th century. Perhaps um, one of the most, uh, just I'll call it one of the, without, um, one of the most controversial figures of the 20th century was Rabbi Yashav Ber Soloveitchik. Rabbi Yashav Ber Soloveitchik was born in Prajani in Bela, what is now Belarus in 1903. His father was Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, who was the son of Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, who was the son of the first Rav Byashev Ber Soloveitchik, known as the Beis Alevi, who was the son-in-law of the Natsiv, the, um, I'm sorry, the um, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik was the son-in-law of saying this backwards, Reb Rafal Shapiro, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin, who was the son-in-law of the Natsiv, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin, who was the son-in-law of Reb Yitzchak of Velazhin, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin, who was the son of Reb Chaim of Velazhin, the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin. Let me explain all that. 300 years ago, there lived Reb Eliyahu of Vilna, who was the chief rabbi, the... Was, Officially, but he was the great rabbi in Vilna and the leader of Lithuanian Jewry. His student, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, said what we need is a yeshiva, a place for study, a central place for study, where the whole world can come and study in this one location that would have the greatest teachers. And so he opened this yeshiva in Velazhin. It was called the Velazhin of Yeshivas, and it, the Velazhin Yeshiva, and it was the mother of all yeshivas. It was then taken over by his son, um, Rabbi Yitzchak of Velazhin, and then by his son-in-law, the Nitziv, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin of Velazhin, and then his son-in-law, Rabbi Rafal Shapiro, the, um, who would become the Rosh Hashiva of Velazhin, Rabbi Rafal Shapiro married his daughter to Rabbi Chaim Salavechik, making the Salavechik family, so to speak, heirs to the throne of the Torah world. In 1926, the Serbiashev Bar went to study in Berlin, in the Berlin in the University of Berlin. In 1931, he was married, and in 1932, he moved to the United States, where he became the chief rabbi of Boston. And there, he had his own way of approaching Judaism. He was a trailblazer, created his own paths, he um, 
enacted many changes which were very controversial. And uh, nine years later, in 1941, his father, who was at, at that time was the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva University in Washington Heights in New York City, um, passed away, and in 1941 he was invited to become the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva University, and there he would be until he passed away in, in 1993. And between 1941 and 1993, Rabbi Yasher Bar um, uh, um appointed, he gave smicha to more than 2,000 rabbis. The approach of the briskers was to analyze every aspect of the text to try to get a deeper understanding because very often we get so lost in the why that we forget the what. Let me say that again. So often we get so lost in the why that we forget the what. And what I mean by that is, or why I mean by that is, that too often we talk about um, trying to understand the reasons for something, why something happens or why something is supposed to be the way that it is, and we get so caught up on the reasoning that we forget the original question, which is what am I supposed to do? And without the what, you never really come to the proper understanding of the why. And so here is his approach. He quotes a Rambam, Rabbi Yashubar Salavechi quotes a Rambam, who says that when someone passes away, it is prohibited to cry too much for them. The language of the Rambam is al yiskashe adam al meso. A person should not be too mournful over someone who passes away. Shenemar, as it says in the verse, al tifkul ames. Don't cry for the dead. Al tanudilo, and don't be destroyed. more than you need to. Why? Shazam min hagashal olam, because death is the way of the world. If you cause yourself, you afflict yourself more than what is natural, that's a fool. Rather, three days for crying, seven days for mourning, 30 days a year, whatever, etc., etc. There is a concept of having the proper reaction to situations as they happen. That's something that's very difficult for all of us to do. Someone insults us. We become angry. That anger is always going to be more than what is appropriate. When someone insults us and we become ashamed, the shame is for some reason always more than we are supposed to have. And that's because we don't do a good tr a job of tracking what we're feeling and the proper response to it. Just in general, as human beings, it is a place where we fail. Uh, so the thing is, it's really not that big a deal because you can recover afterwards. But when someone leaves the world, if we don't have a process by which we control our mourning, then we stay stuck in that place forever. Because death is too devastating to naturally 
flow away from if you don't have a conscious perception of what's happening and walk away from it yourself. And that is why our sages teach us, and that's what the Rambam quotes, that you, there's a process for mourning, and you are not allowed to mourn more than what is appropriate. If for the one year you're supposed to avoid attending any joyous occasions, a person cannot say, I'm going to avoid attending joyous occasions for two years. That isn't right, because the Torah is teaching you the proper steps by which you should mourn. But that's only true of mourning for someone who has passed away. But it is not true for mourning the tragedy of the destruction of the temple. And that's what Rabbi Yashibar Salavechik wants to try to figure out. And so to resolve this, he suggests four differences between the process of mourning for an individual that has passed away and the mourning for the destruction of the temple which happened all this time ago. Why can't I mourn for someone who has passed away from the world more than what is appropriate? So do you remember the language of the Rambam? He said, because that's the way of the world. What does that mean? It means that everyone is going to die. I know that's hard for many people to... We live in this illusion of our mortality, but everyone is going to go. And that has to be something that we hold on to. The reality of that. That life is short. Being that life is short, it A, motivates us to stop wasting our time with silly stuff because life passes just like that. But also, it allows us to handle and to cope with tragedies that happen when we realize that this world is a short world and we're all just visiting. And some people have a more time in this world and some people have less time in the world. And so that does not mean that death is not a tragedy. How do we know death is a tragedy? Because the Torah commands us that when someone passes away, we are required to mourn. And sometimes a person may even have so much resentment that they have trouble mourning, they're required to mourn anyway. When you say required to mourn, or just using the word mourn, are you talking about, you're not talking about the emotional impact, are you? You're talking about... The, the outward man. Well, you, you have to go. Th- you have to go through the steps, which are the acts of mourning. But those need to be turned inward. They can't just be on the surface out. You have to actually be feeling it. So the obligation to mourn is a real obligation because the Torah wants us to see death as a tragedy, but not to be lost in the concept of death. There's too many um, cultures that, because they can't handle death, they begin to worship the dead. They begin to, they have so, they're so fascinated, and I'm going to use a stronger word, infatuated with death, that it takes away from their living of life, and that's not the Torah way. But, so, but a, pers- 
a person's not going over anything if past the official time of mourning they are still the actions if they're still doing the actions of mourning okay. then there's a problem which is why I use the example of a person who says well I'm not going to attend joyous occasions for two years that, that right the pain and anyone who's ever lost anyone knows that if even if the pain subsides, it never goes away. So it's not like you can, you can hit a switch and turn it off. But the actions need to be reined in or called in. So he says, that's only true of the kinds of tragedies which are the way of the world. But if there's a tragedy that occurs that is outside the proper boundaries of nature, then those rules don't apply. And Jerusalem, standing in its glory with the temple as the channel by which man can connect to the Holy One, blessed is He, its destruction is not the way of the world. It is a corruption within the fabric of the way the world is supposed to be. And so therefore, as an unnatural tragedy, it brings with it unnatural mourning. And so 2,000 years later, we're still mourning the tragedy because things that are unnatural are not bound by those same rules. Which may be why... There's actually an interesting discussion because sometimes we find that when um, tragedies occur that are, as we say, um, we may put it less natural, meaning um, maybe a, an accident where someone dies in an unfair way, or if chas uh, v'shalom, if, you know, someone, someone younger. Um, past, those things are going to be harder to deal with and recover from because they don't quite qualify for what the Rambam writes is the natural way of the world which would allow for a, a, a more natural recovery that isn't going to be true in the case of that isn't going to be true in the case of something that's less natural. Which is why, even though for mourning, generally speaking, someone passes away, we don't fast, but yet on su this Sunday, we're all fasting. Why are we fasting? Isn't that more than what is um, normal to make an obligation to fast? And the answer is yes, because this tragedy is so bad. And it's an amazing thing, because you have to wonder, I don't know, please correct me if anyone can think of, is there anywhere in the world that there is a culture that's mourning an event that happened thousands of years ago as if it happened yesterday? I'm not aware of, of such a thing existing in the world anywhere. And um, there are things that are commemorated that happened then. But if you go into shul on Sunday, you'll see people are crying as if, as if this just happened. 
And the first explanation that Rabbi Yashabar Salavechik wants to suggest is that there are two, we call it Shnei Dinim, is the brisker way of phrasing it. There's two Dinim, there's two approaches within the world of mourning. There is mourning, something natural within the way of the world, which you cannot overdo it, because when you overdo it, you're stepping outside, you're almost denying the way that the world works. And then you've got things that are unnatural. And when things are unnatural, the rules are different. Which is why, he explains, for example, there's this custom that some people have, that on Tisha B'Av, on the 9th of Av, if um, you're supposed to, if you usually sleep with two pillows, you sleep with one pillow. And if you sleep with one pillow, either you have no pillow, or some people put a, a rock under their pillow. Have you heard this custom? See it? What kind of mourning is that? Where do you find that in the laws of mourning? There's no such thing. And the answer is, because this is not the regular rules of mourning. And so here we are, still, and building on the difficulties of what happened. Does that mean that something like the Holocaust, which was unnatural in the sense that um, it was... um, you know, such a large-scale systematic uh, destruction of people, uh, that that would have the same status? Yes, I'd say exactly that. That the, any time that you've got, I think the Holocaust is a great example of that, and any time you've got something which is so, I don't want to use the word bizarre, because it's almost insulting to say that, but so unnatural, unexpected, so grotesque. out of place, grotesque. Large-scale. This, you know, people just being exterminated by the millions. Yeah, so there is no, there is no point at which we say, okay, we've mourned enough. It doesn't exist. And, and the same thing would be anytime you've got some major genocide or... It would just be once, it, it's, not, it's not within the way the world functions, and so there is this entirely new view of it. I always thought that fasting and, for example, the idea of putting a rock under your pillow or sleeping with less pillows was to make us feel more like it's Tisha B'Av. Rather than a manifestation of the morning, it was to help us Right. right, that's how you usually explain it. That, that we're just doing this in order... But the thing is, it doesn't work. If, if it's in that direction, which is that we're putting a pillow, or putting a rock under the pillow so that it inspires me, which is how some take it. For example, they talk about how this is like the pillow that Yaakov put under his head, the stone that Yaakov put his head on on the night when he saw the dream of the ladder and they connected to that. That's, what, that's a direction and that's the way some people read it, but he's reading it the other way. He's saying that we're all so hurt by the destruction of the temple, as if it happened yesterday. We're all there, and we'll get to the, are we really all there soon, but, but we're all there that we are looking to do more stuff. And it's because we simply, uh, we'll explain it soon, you simply, we're, we're always looking for more stuff to express our mourning rather than to inspire us to mourn. Okay. The, let, let me phrase it even better. Let me phrase it better because this is the way that Rabbi Yashabar says it. Um, 
when something is within the world of nature, it's also bound by a certain rules of numbers and mathematics. Once something becomes unnatural, you never really can finish mourning because there's nothing that you could do that will cover the level of pain that we experience because the pain is endless when something is unnatural. So it's almost like something which has no definition, its response can't have a definition, which is maybe the be- a better way of saying it. Okay, that is explanation difference number one. Difference number two is he says, we all react differently. There's some people who cry at everything. They cry at weddings. They cry at funerals. They cry when they see a sad film. They cry when they see a happy film. They cry when they see children playing with puppies. They cry at everything. And there's some people who onions couldn't make them cry. What's the rule when someone is, someone has passed away? Someone close, a relative. What's the rule about crying? So get this. The rule is, you should not cry more than three days. How do you help that? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. But that's the rule. In other words, obviously you're allowed to have a cry. But just this continued, just sob all day. Past three days, you're not allowed to. So, it doesn't say that you have to cry. There's no instructions, you shall cry for three days. There's only an instruction on how much you should not cry, which is more than three days. And yet, if you look in all the books, all the works of Halacha, that discuss the laws of Tishabav this coming Sunday, they all say, you should cry. You should cry for the destruction of the temple. There actually is an obligation to cry. Which means there's a difference between a natural mourning, which is part of the process of the world, the way it's supposed to be, is that people pass away, and the people who remain behind mourn for them. Part of that process is that each person should experience the mourning, the tragedy, as they experience it, who they are. Now, if a person's not crying enough, we might have them question themselves. You know, are you in touch with your emotions enough? Are you, are you, or are you blocked up? Which is itself an issue. But in terms of the rules, you cry how you feel like crying. But when it comes to the destruction of the temple, everyone must cry because it's no longer dependent on your natural tolerance for tears. Everyone's required to cry. Where does that come from? So he says, very beautifully, why was the temple destroyed? So there were actually two temples. The first one was destroyed because we were transgressing some pretty serious transgressions. The second temple was destroyed because baseless hatred, causeless hatred. We couldn't get along. We couldn't get along and Hashem said, okay, if you can't get along when things are good, let's see if you can fix it when things are not so good. But why that day? Why was the first temple and the second temple destroyed on the 9th of Av? 
And in fact, it's really strange because the chances of the Babylonians destroying the temple and then 490 years later to the day the, the Romans destroyed the second temple on the exact same day of the Hebrew calendar. The chances of that are, actually not hard to calculate, about 354, right? right? Well, 354 because of the Hebrew calendar. Okay, but you know, what are the chances, what are the chances that the Ferdinand and Isabella, king and queen of Spain, who decide that the Jews are, what's the, what's, the Jews are a problem in Spain because this, Spain is supposed to be a country, a Christian country, loyal to the Christian faith. And having all these non-believers in our country doesn't sit well with us. And so they issued a decree that all the Jews must leave in 1492. And the Jews looked at the calendar because they were given a secular date. They looked at their calendar and said, oh boy, look at that, the 9th of Av. What are the chances of... Yeah, so now we're at 354 to the third power. What are the chances of that being the Hebrew date that World War I would break out on? And I'm, the, the mathematics of this is incredible. But it's not just these four events. Over and over, bad things keep happening to the Jewish people. And they all happen to fall on the 9th of Av. It's almost like we expected. They're like, you know, this day in August, we're like, I bet you it's the 9th of Av. And then you take a look, you're like, oh, guess what? It's the 9th of Av. So at that point, you go, it's amazing, the chances of that, the, what a coincidence. Well, it's not a coincidence if it's planned. What about bad things happening in the rest of the world? I mean, generally, also, those two mass shootings, yeah, it, a lot of things. Like World War I isn't necessarily a Jewish tragedy, but it would lead to the Jewish tragedy. But, but yeah, world tragedies, there's something, there's something really bad about. And during this week, during this week, lots of bad things happen. And it's, it, and the answer is, because it goes back to what it tells us in the Torah, that the Jews, Jewish people were in the Sinai Peninsula, they made their way up to, uh, on their way to Eretz Yisrael, and they said to Moshe, how about we send some spies? Moshe said, great idea, let me go ask God. And God says, I don't think it's a good idea. Moshe's like, what the people really wanted, and God says, well, you can send them if you want to, but I really think it's a bad idea. And Moshe's like, okay, well, thanks for your advice, we're going to send the spies anyway. Right? And so, they come back 40 days later, with this evil report about how the land of Israel, it is, it's, 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 it's dangerous and the people there are too mighty, we can't defeat them. They came back with all this, this zero faith in God's promise. And the, the Torah tells us, And the people cried that night. Now, if they traveled, they left on the 1st of Tammuz, that means they came back the 9th of Av. The Jewish people cried all night. And the Gemara tells us that just like every good parent who's here, what, what does a parent say when a child cries over nothing? 
I'll give you something to cry about. But that's actually what it says in the Talmud. God said, you cry for nothing, I'll give you a reason to cry about. Which is why it's not that bad things happen because of that. But all bad things that are going to happen are going to happen on that day. So that we can remember that crying over nothing leads to us needing to cry over something. So he says that would explain why. Even though there are times when we don't need to cry. Someone's passed away. You know, it's true. It's never... Sometimes you go to a house of mourning and people say, oh, you know, how old were they? And they say, oh, they were 90, 95. They go, oh, so they lived a long life. It's not the nicest thing to say necessarily because no one ever lives enough. No one's living enough. Like, especially if this is like a parent or a grandparent. They say, oh, they lived, they lived a nice long life. Like, no, I, I still had things to uh, say to them. Uh, there's, never, there's never any point at which, at which but nevertheless we have to admit that even though it's not the nice thing for someone visiting the mourner to say, even though people who show up at the house of mourning typically have no clue as to what the right thing to say is, but, but nevertheless it is true though, that it is sadder when someone dies in their 80s than when someone dies in their 90s, and it's sadder in the 70s and the 60s and 50s and so forth the younger the person is, the more sad it is, it is that is true and so the crying is going to correlate to how terrible the tragedy is. The destruction of the temple and all the things that happened to the Jewish people on the ninth above are so horrible that there is no human being that should be able to go through Tisha B'Av without shedding tears. And that's the lesson, if any, that I'd like to emphasize at this point in this discussion, is that Tisha B'Av... For too many people, it's what time does it start and what time does the fast end? What about what happens in between? Can we find... Tisha B'Av is 25 hours long. Can you find somewhere in those 25 hours where you really feel a sense of mourning? That you feel like there's a tragedy that happened and it's a universal tragedy. And it's an unspeakable tragedy. The world is in a broken place. In the days when the temple stood, as it says very clearly, that the holy temple was a house of prayer for all the nations, the whole world was in a better place. And because the temple is gone, we have a broken world. This is why. What is the most prominent feature at every funeral? The eulogies. What are eulogies? What is the purpose of a eulogy? So the main purpose of a eulogy is to honor the deceased, to talk about who they were, to describe something about their life, to try to give a picture of who they were and what they, and to um, understand why we're going to miss this person. Maybe a lesson that could be learned from this person. It's about honoring the deceased. And above, we don't give eulogies. We don't sit there and describe there was a temple. Let me tell you how beautiful it was and what it represented. What do we do on Tishabov? Kinos. Lamentations. We cry. We talk about all the terrible things that happened. It's a whole day where we just talk about how many people were killed here and how many people were killed there. 
In fact, the custom is that we don't just talk about the destruction of the temple, we talk about the Crusades and the thousands of Jews that were killed through the Crusades, and the thousands of Jews who were killed in the pogroms and in the massacres and in the blood libels and in the... Um, other kinds of sufferings which only led to the worst of them all, which was the Holocaust. And we put it all together into one because Kinos is about lamentations, about getting us to cry, because this is the time to cry over things that we need to cry about. And that's the second difference between regular mourning and Tisha B'Av and the mourning for the Temple. Again, difference number one was that there's a limitation on regular morning, there's no limitation on crying for the temple. Difference number two is that um, there's no obligation to cry necessarily for uh, the passing of someone. But here, there is actually an obligation to cry. Number three. When it comes to mourning, the laws of mourning, usually it's the same for everyone. Everyone has to sit for seven days and everyone has to not take a haircut for 30 days, and everyone needs to not attend joyous events for one year. The fact that you are a person of stature doesn't change anything. The fact that you are a person of humble uh, means doesn't change anything. But that's not the case in Tisha because as we saw, the Rambam writes that the um, Hasidim Rishonim, the ancient ones, they used to um, eat this bread under the oven with the water, these special people, and then he says, and if you're a sage, you should do this too, and personally, in my custom, says the Rambam, what's the Rambam trying to say? So says Rabbi Yashabar Soloveitchik that the Rambam is trying to say that when it comes to the mourning of the temple, actually everyone has a different experience and you have to mourn based on your personal understanding of the destruction. And he explains why. We all experience death the same way. Meaning, once a person has come to understand what death means, that when someone is gone, they're actually gone. They're not coming back. There are stages of grief. There is a process. But essentially, death is the same to us all. Death and taxes, right? But when we talk about the destruction of the temple and the tragedies that have occurred to the Jewish people, the more history you know, the more offended you are, the more repulsed you are, the better you appreciate what the temple meant the deeper is your mourning and your pain for the fact that it's gone. And that may be why, for some people, it's like, what time does the fast start? What time does the fast end? And then, after the prayers, okay, if I take a four-hour nap, and then I can wake up at the end of that, watch a couple of films, and then by that time, the fast will be over. But for those people who think about what would it be like if there was a temple in Jerusalem, what if the world had a center for the service of God? What if the universe was all aligned perfectly? The more you understand the significance of the Beis Hamikdash, of the Holy Temple, the more you understand how tragic is its destruction, you're going to have a different kind of mourning. And so therefore, those who are more knowledgeable are going to um, 
are going to mourn in a deeper way. And that is the third difference between regular Avelus, regular mourning, and the mourning of Tisha B'Av. But then, Rabbi Asher Ber, and all this can be found in the Harei Kedem. The Harei Kedem is the collections of the writings of Rabbi Asher Ber Salvechik, as collected by my Rabbi, Rabbi Michal Shurkin, um, who was a student of Rabbi Asher Ber. And so the fourth one, I think, is the most striking. The Talmud tells us, Kishem Shemavarchim al Hatova, Kach Mavarchim al Hara'ah. In the same way we bless God for good things that happen, in the same way we bless God for bad things that happen. Says the Talmud, the same way? Like you, when, what do you say when good things happen to you? Thank you, God, please give me more. So is, are you going to give the same reaction when something bad happens? Says the Gemara, no, 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 of course not. But you have to have the same level of acceptance you have to be able to say, I don't understand, but I know that you, God, know what you're doing. Famous story that's told amongst the Hasidim about this great rabbi who came to his rabbi and said to him, rabbi I, ju- rabbi, I just studied this passage in the Talmud that says the same way that you're supposed to bless God for uh, good things that happen, you're supposed to bless God for bad things that happen. He says, I can't do it. Bad things happen to me, and I'm pretty upset about it. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not ready to accept. So he says, well, I don't have the answer to that either. But I know someone who does. Rebzisha. Rebzisha of Hanimpoli. Go to him, and he'll be able to answer your question. So he travels to Hanimpoli, where he sees Rebzisha. Um, he asks where, where can his house be found. And so as he approaches the street, he looks at the piece of paper with the address, and uh, this can't be it. This doesn't look like a home that anyone could be living in. This looks like a shack. But he knocks on the door, and there this great sage opens the door, and he walks inside, and he sees a home. You couldn't even call it a home. This is literally a shed with some straw in a corner to sleep on. There are holes all over the roof where water is still dripping from last night's rain. There is a smell about the room. The earth, the floor is a floor of earth and there's dust everywhere except in the places where water is dripping. There is nothing in the house to eat. There is barely any furniture. There is nothing there. He has never seen such unlivable conditions in his life. And this sage, Rabzisha, says to him, so my young friend, what can I do for you? He says, well, I've got this question, which is, I just read in the Talmud, it says the same way that you thank Hashem for good things that happen, you're supposed to bless God for all the bad things that happen. And I asked my teacher, and he said, I should come and ask you. Abzisha says, ask me. Ask me. How would I know the answer to that? Nothing bad has ever happened to me in all my life. There is a concept 
of being able to know that the life that I am in and the things that have happened to me have a system and there is an approach that I don't understand but that I know it exists. Now that doesn't mean that we don't feel pain. As one of the great rabbis was asked, he said, well, if I'm supposed to thank or thank, bless God for all the bad things that happened to me, then why am I crying? And he said, you cry because it hurts. But you can still accept that everything that has ever happened to you, anything that's happening to you, anything that will happen to you, is part of some divine plan. And so therefore, when someone passes away, the blessing we make is Baruch Dayan Ha'emes. Blessed is the one who is the judge of truth. We don't say thank you. We don't say Gamzu Latova, this is for the good. We don't say that. We say, you God are the true judge. You have judged me. You have acted with me severely. But you are the true judge. And so you know what you're doing. We say, we quote the verse in Azinu HaTzur, Tamim Pa'alo, the rock. His actions are perfect. Kichol derachav mishpat, all his ways are just. That's only true of mourning for someone who passed away. But when it comes to mourning the temple, we are allowed to challenge God and say, Why? Why did you do this? We, can, we are allowed to. This is Yosher Salavechik. This is what he says. He says, we're allowed to say to God, why? How can you justify this kind of tragedy? We are allowed to challenge God. And he says, you know why? Because when God does something to the multitudes, to the public, to a group of people, at that point, we no longer need to just accept silently. And we are allowed to say to God, how could you allow this to happen? You know where we learned this from, he says? All the way back, in the beginning of Sefer Shemos. Moshe shows up to Pharaoh and says to him, let my people go. And what does power say? You Jews have way too much time on your hands. How about we double your workload and let's decrease the resources we're going to give you. Now let's see if you still have time to talk about redemption. Talk about a savior. The Torah tells us that Moshe walked out of the palace and said to God, You send me to do this. Why are you making things bad for them? Now, Hashem says to Moshe, don't talk to me that way. I know what I'm doing. Um, but nevertheless, Moshe felt entitled to ask. Why did you do this to the people? I came here to save them, and all you've done is bad things. Who talks, who's allowed to talk to God that way? And the answer is, when there is a tragedy that happens of this kind, we are allowed to, almost expected, to challenge God. Which is why, what's the first word in the book of Lamentations? Echa, which means? How, why, echo. What is going on here? The first question is, and that's what he says, echa. How could it be? She's sitting by herself. The city that was once multitudes of people. 
Chaysa Ka'almana, the city of Yerushalayim is a widow. Bachosif Kebalayla, we cry in the night. You know how Echa ends? It ends with Lama Lanetzach Tishkachenu. How have you forgotten us for so long? 2,000 years? That's a long time to be kicked out of your father's home. Hashem has exiled us. 2,000 years later, we're still observing the Torah as given to us at Sinai. And we're still kicked out. You know, at some point, there are people who will step in and try to make peace between parents and children. Who's making the peace here? Who is going to bring back the Jewish people to their father in heaven? How have you forgotten us? That's in the book of Echa. But are we technically still, since anyone, most people, there's no temple they wanted to go back to that's still not That's still not Eretz Yisrael with Nevoah and prophecy and uh, the temple standing. As much as there, there is not an undoing of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, we're still exiled, and and this is this is a according to everyone, right? That's not that's not. So, reading this teaching from Rabbi Yisrael Salavechik, which I think this is, this is such an important um, such an important lesson. Again, I'm just going to repeat four differences before I go back to my point. Number one is that there is a concept of going beyond beyond the limitations and the measures. Number two, there's an obligation to cry. Number three, that um, each person, according to their level of understanding. And number four, that we're allowed to ask questions. But, uh, I shouldn't say allowed to. We're supposed to ask it as a form of questions. So there are two thoughts that I had here. I think the first one, I don't have a, a, a real strong belief in, but the second one I do. Let me explain them. We know on Pesach night, we have a lot of customs on Pesach night, on the night of Passover. And a few of them are actions of mourning, such as the egg on the Seder plate, and the, the kittel, the white um, tunic that we wear, almost make you, making you feel like shrouds. Why is that? Because as we know, that the first night of Pesach always comes out on the same day of the week as the night of Tisha B'Av. Why? Because Passover represents the redemption, the original redemption, the exodus from, from Egypt. And Tisha B'av represents the mourning or the destruction, the undoing of that redemption, which is why they fall out always on the same day of the week. So that explains why we have customs of Tisha B'av, of the ninth of Av, on Pesach. Meaning we do things on Pesach night that remind us of Tisha B'av. But what do we do on Tisha B'av to remind us of Pesach? According to Rabbi Yashar Ber Salavechik, get this, we ask questions. Tisha B'av. On Pesach night, we ask questions. Why do we dip this? Why are we eating chametz, matzah? Why are we leaning to the left? We ask questions, but the whole night is about asking questions. You know what? Because we have to learn. What do we have to learn? That the best way to get answers is by asking, asking, asking. So we want answers on the 9th of Av. And if you want answers, you have to ask questions. I, I think, again, he doesn't say this, but 
And I'm myself not convinced of this. But this next point, I think, is certainly included. There are many people who walked away from the Holocaust given, having given up on their faith. And the truth is that no one can blame them. You can't hold anyone responsible. After what the people who were in the concentration camps, what they went through, there is no one who can judge them. I would say even the Almighty, but there is no judgment for that. And there are people who walked away somehow holding on to their faith, steadfast and maybe even stronger in their faith than when they started, which is a bit of a puzzle. There are people who in the Holocaust cried out, how have you abandoned us? And we consider and we read these writings and we go, this is a true hero. And yet we see other people who say, why has God abandoned us? And they walked away. What's the difference between them? So according to this teaching from Yasha Bar Soloveitchik, I think there may be an answer like this. There were people who watched their families die in front of their own eyes and who were then forced to work the kinds of tasks that were absolutely, completely inhumane, unfair to any human being. And they said, God, how could you do this to me? And that's a fair question, and no one's going to judge you for it. But it's not the right question. The right question is, how could you do this to us? And maybe even phrase it better, how could you do it to them? And I think that's the difference. If you look in the writings of the great sages, they say, God, how could you do this to your children? And that's a different question than why is this happening to me? Because you know why it's happening to you? There's an answer. There's a system. And that's why things happen to you, because you live according to the system that's set up for you. And that's fine. I'll accept what's happening to me, but I will not accept what is happening to the world. And that's the mourning of Tishabav is all the suffering of all the Jewish people in all the generations. That's a different question. This question of Eicha, how? How is it that this happened to Yerushalayim? How is it that this happened to the Jewish people? That's a completely different question. So, again, I'm not taking away from our individual suffering, our individual mourning, but those mournings have a limit. We started with this question of how is it on Sunday we're all going to sit there and literally cry for something that happened almost 2,000 years ago, the destruction of the temple, something I never saw, my parents never saw, my grandparents never saw. And the answer is that it's because it is so tragic, it is still happening to me. The world is still a broken world. The Jewish people are still suffering. There are still enemies who want to destroy us. Tishabav is about the mourning 
of the destruction of the temple. And if you're missing in your proper observance of Tishabav, it means that you're missing in your understanding of how important that temple was when it stood in Yerushalayim. There's still some time. There's still some time for us to learn more about the temple. And there's still some time for us to have that temple rebuilt. We just have to do more good deeds. The more good deeds we do, the more bricks we lay on that temple, and the faster we are to a redemption. But until that time comes, we should feel, we should get in touch with our emotions. We should find that place where we can really feel things and properly. And as we say, those who merit to mourn, those who take the opportunity to mourn for Yerushalayim, those are the people who are going to merit to see its redemption and its rebuilding by Meher Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 